Today someone sent us photographs of some of the relief, flood relief work going on in northeast Thailand at the moment. Pictures of monks wading through waist-high flood water or even shoulder-high flood water to houses to deliver food, drinking water and other supplies. And whether you attribute the flooding to the typhoon that came in or global warming or any other causes, what's needed at the moment in those sort of situations is compassionate relief and do what's necessary to give something, particularly as monks, maybe to give something back to the people who support us when they're in trouble. In the time of the Buddha, the Buddha himself referred to the main, his main, or the main qualities of mind of a Buddha being wisdom and compassion. And obviously sometimes one or the other seems to take the lead in our practice or listening to the Buddha's words. But really they come from the same place. And later, perhaps later on after the Buddha's death, a third quality, the quality of uh, Parasutikuna, the pure heart, the pure mind, was added the mind that's free from kilesas, perhaps just to help people reflect on another aspect of what a Buddha is. And you notice, say, in suttas and <clears throat> commentaries, how often the Buddha would show compassion first when teaching people to relax them, give them some hope, give them some good feeling in a situation, uh, just the same as most uh, meditation masters and teachers. And often in his talks, he would guide people through a step-by-step -step reflection on the practice. And maybe beginning with the fruits of just simple merit-making, offering dana, practicing kindness in different ways, maintaining faith in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and so on. And then explain the virtues of sila, the happiness of keeping the precepts, the five precepts for laity, <coughs> patimokha sila for bhikkhus. And then talk more about the reasons why we further develop the practice through bhavana and you often talk about the dangers of samsara living in the world it's an uncertain place and the highest wisdom that the buddha talked about is always the, the wisdom that sees anicca dukkha anatta in physical form 
mental form, uh, mental physicality and mentality, nama rupa. So when there are, say, news of natural disasters, conflicts, or just individuals having suffering in their life, it's always a moment to pause and reflect on the nature of sangsara, whether it's this life, last life, next life. It's a fragile place. There are disadvantages when we invest all our happiness in sangsara in the world because we easily get disappointed. And even the heaven realms only provide temporary relief, but they're still bound up with sangsara. So this is the story they like to talk about when Indra was getting a little bit too comfortable, even though he was already somebody with a lot of merit and far advanced in his practice. The Buddha asked Moggallana just to help remind him of the dangers, the disadvantages of particularly of sensuality, comfort, karma sukha. And so Sariputta tapped his foot and made a heavenly earthquake, made Indra's palace shake. So everybody stopped the partying for a few moments. And the wise ones, including Indra, knew immediately this was a teaching, reminding them of the impermanence of life, the world, and the kind of happiness we keep getting caught into and seeking. So the Buddha would often go on having soothed the listeners with talk on making merit, keeping precepts, and some basic numbers. Then he'd go on to talk more deeply about the dangers of sankhsara to arouse faith in the practice, faith and effort, and particularly right view. Lay the seeds of wisdom that could over time come to fruition through the practice. As we've been hearing and studying in his first few teachings to the bhikkhus, the Dhammachaka Sutta, Anatalakana Sutta, and then the Adita Pariyaya Sutta, the fire sermon. He's pointing out suffering, its cause, the nature of the world, the nature of attachment, and how it leads to more suffering when we're not reflecting on it and seeing it correctly. Sanjan Chah used to like to quote the metaphor for the suffering of sense objects, how as humans we're always chasing after the next bit of pleasure and happiness through our senses, eyes, ears, tongue, smell, tactile sensations, and then mental objects. We're always chasing after, hoping for some relief from other forms of suffering and hoping for some lasting high and he used to talk about the man fishing being very apt in northeast Thailand. They do a lot of freshwater fishing and 
even in the flood period, people will be fishing because fish come up into the streets, the fields, everywhere. And a man looking for eels, which are a delicacy, as in many parts of the world. And he's feeling around in the mud in the field, catches an eel in his hands, but he can't see it yet. So he's sure that he's got something good, gets a bit excited. Maybe he's got a net around it, so he's pulling the net towards him. And then he puts a hand on the eel, lifts it out of the water. And if he sees a stripe, that's usually the sign that it's a water snake, which are very deadly, give you a nasty bite. So immediately lets go when he sees the stripes on the back of the snake. It's obviously not an eel. So the Buddha was always pointing out the, the danger of our sense object, the, our attachment to the senses, sense objects. The disadvantage that they can never give us perfect, lasting happiness. How they you know, highlight the limitations of this Gamaloka, the sensual realm. The only way you can see that is to develop wisdom and the mindfulness and the stillness of mind that supports clear, clear seeing, which brings us back to the practice of bhavana meditation. And you'll see a lot of our frustrations in meditation are just endless mind seeking the next distraction, the next thing to do, the next thing to experience, have, or getting rid of the unpleasant feelings, sensations, moods. And a lot of our frustration lies there when our mindfulness and insight, our wisdom is not quite sharp enough to see the danger. And so we keep grasping at the snake and keep getting bitten, as it were. So a lot of our practice is about developing that mindfulness in daily life, using the quietness of the forest, the simplicity of the Vinaya and the lifestyle to really train the mind to see the nature of existence. As we know in the lay life it's much harder because there's more distraction, more opportunity to follow desire, sensual desire. So one important aspect of our practice is to develop that sense of contentment with the requisites we have, the place we have, and so on. Because the nature of sensuality is it's always leading us to discontent, wanting more, wanting things different, wanting better. And we have to learn how to go against that habit, recognize it and go against it. Say no to things and try to find that peace of contentment and happiness, you know, whatever requisites food, medicines, robes come our way, develop that sense of it's good enough or it's just enough. In Thai the word is podi, something Lumpur Cha would use a lot, this phrase podi, it's just enough. So we don't go the way of Atakila Matani Yoga, which was prevalent in amongst spiritual practitioners in the time of the Buddha always trying to break down desire through 
willpower and ascetic practices which really pushed physically and mentally pushed them to extremes thinking that somehow that would uh, free the mind, liberate the mind from this attachment to sensual desire. We don't go to that extreme. We're still allowed to eat, have robes, have dwellings. We don't go naked. We don't starve ourselves. <coughs> but we have to find that subtle level of just enough. You know, enough food so that you're healthy. Enough warmth in the winter so that you're not falling sick, enough robes so you're protected, and so on. A lot of our practice is learning that level, the level that is just enough. Just enough sleep, just enough food, not too much, not too little. You might even say that's a lifetime practice, but it's certainly an ongoing practice for a bhikkhu. But the more we understand this point and then we understand and see the danger in sensuality, then that's where wisdom comes. And the more you can see how sense objects and the pleasures and the pains that our senses bring us are impermanent and they come and go, the more the mind tires and the quality of nibida that we chant about, nibida weariness, disenchantment with the world which we were formerly enchanted with starts to arise. If you've run after something so many times and failed to get any lasting happiness, then your mind starts to weary of running and insight comes up. We start to look more closely and realize that true happiness doesn't come from following craving actually stirs us up, makes us more agitated, more suffering, never content. So the phrase, just enough, very, like so many that Lumpo Cha used, is a very, it's a very easy, simple reflection, and it can lead to a very quick sense of contentment in our day as we're dealing with this untamed mind and the unchecked way um, craving runs around causing us all kinds of uh, distraction and disappointment and so on. And over time then we start to, if the wisdom is developing through this practice then we do start to weary, tire of following craving, following the objects. Whether it's you know, tired of getting irritated upset, angry over things that don't go away, other people, experiences that we have, or just the basic seeking of always wanting to do something next, go somewhere, have something, experience something. Your mind starts to tire, nibida starts to come up. Maybe just very simply, very briefly, but it's a taste of the direction that leads to Nibbana, release. And they talk about Nibbana as having three main characteristics. I guess the one who realizes Nibbana or glimpses Nibbana, they call them the body witness. They see the dukkha of a body, how it's always hidden by posture. 
changing of posture. As soon as you get aches and pains sitting, you either move yourself a little bit or you just get up. Lying down too long, we get up. Walking too long, we stop. And that's, it's the change of posture that hides the dukkha of a human body. Obviously many other things plaster over the experience of dukkha, the sense objects, the nice things of the world. But when you reduce it right back down, it's posture. One has seen through that, witnessed that posture is a form of delusion, changing posture. So the dukkha, dukkha characteristic becomes very clear. Others, the clarity is, comes through observing anicca. Um, they call it the characteristic animita, sanya, or the signless nature of phenomena. But if things are always changing, there's no permanent mark or sign in physical phenomena or mental phenomena. There's nothing you can grasp at and say, this is lasting, this is it. Because they're always changing. Even if it may be a very subtle sankhara, like you know, the experience of deep samadhi, eventually it's still impermanent. The last quality is uh, Anatta, selflessness, or sunyata, emptiness, the emptiness of form, obviously, the emptiness of self in form, the emptiness of self in even mental activity, just the conceit, the view of I, through the development of wisdom, disappears. They say we don't notice Anatta because of compactness. You know, things seem solid. We're sitting here, we have a body, we think, we feel, we remember. It all seems very compact. So wisdom has to develop the ability to penetrate, analyze, penetrate and look deeper. And obviously the three characteristics are linked. So you see one, you see the others. Impermanence is blocked by the sense of continuity. So when you contemplate your sense objects and the senses. You know, there's always this sense of it's just me seeing, hearing, thinking, it all merges into one continuous stream. And we have that sense of this is me, who I am, off we go. But as we bring up more mindfulness and question that and look more deeply, well, we start to break through some of that sense of continuity see more things from moment to moment, moods and thoughts arising, ceasing, feelings, pleasure and pain, the changing nature of the body, you know, cells constantly being created and dividing and dying, you know, the body is constantly changing. The compactness that hides anatta, you know, we, we have to break through calm the mind, bring it to stillness until we see things are distinct. There's different parts to this body. There's four elements, 32 parts. So a super meditation is very good for that. Just keep coming back to visual and wise reflection on the body, seeing how it's made up of different parts. And there's no fixed 
whole, fixed self in that. Mentally, it's much harder, the activities of the mind, to see them, break them down and separate them. Much harder. So, see, the Sodapana can see the view has changed. They no longer take the body as a self. They understand it's, it's going to die, for sure. And there's nothing I can do about it. And that insight is clearly established. There's no more delusion about death, no more fear of death. But they obviously still have greed, anger, conceit. Some of those more subtler mental defilements are still there. So they're only abandoned by the anagami or the arahan. But what we're developing is this right view, this ability to look back at our experience, wisely reflect on experience. And as the other qualities of our practice emerge, you know, the sila, samadhi, the panya, this is what supports wisdom, insight arising. And often it's just not when you expect it, because often the expectation of insight, a form of craving, is a block. So it doesn't always happen when you're sitting, putting forth effort in your sitting or walking meditation. Many people, you know, like Venerable Ananda, the kind of classic how they put forth effort all night meditating until dawn and then just said it's not happening the mind hasn't gathered the insight hasn't arisen so he lay down but before his head reached the pillow his mind gathered in samadhi and the insight into anicca anatta was completed at that moment so he had his liberating experience often it's as a result of effort but it, the result comes later, not when we want it, not when we're expecting it. So on an all-night sit, all-night meditation practice program, often it's you know the following days that we experience some of the benefits. At the time, we might feel oh, <laughs> hopeless, tired. Obviously, we can have breakthroughs. You know, sometimes your mind clears at midnight, one a.m., and you realize. Hmm, so even sleepiness is not a certainty, the mind brightens. But sometimes insight comes you know, next day or three days later. And we should be aware of that so that we don't get disheartened with our efforts. Often it's the clarity of putting forth effort, breaking through hindrances, working with sleepiness, working, working with boredom, irritation, and that wholesome effort is so powerful and so good that it can't fail to affect your mind in a good way over time. But often, you know, it's not when you exactly want it or expect it. And this is why Lumpur Chah said, you know, practice. Just accept things as they are. If you're peaceful, good. If you're not, that's okay. Don't always expect to be peaceful or say, I can only practice when I'm peaceful and feel good. You, know, you never really break through those desires and attachments if you do that. You have to be willing to accept whatever comes your way. Just as with our requisites in the external world, you know, we contemplate it's just enough or it's good enough. Or with our mind as well, it's good enough, even if you have 
a lot of lust or anger popping up, sometimes unexpectedly, sometimes doesn't seem to be linked to anything, doesn't matter, we just accept it. And that comes from a certain practice of goodwill, metta and the karuna, you know, the compassion side that the Buddha was encouraging. We bring up compassion for ourselves when we do have kilesas that are stirring us up, making us feel bad, but not so, com so much compassion that we follow them and cause suffering to others, but we accept them. You know, this is natural. As you meditate, practice, put forth effort, you will experience kilesas you haven't seen before or you've never quite confronted so strongly before. But you just accept that's good enough and it's just part of the practice. We don't have to worry about that or get upset by it or feel down. Just have that goodwill and the compassion for yourself and see the big picture that this is how a human being can improve themselves. They can train, they can practice. And this is where insight will come. Eventually insight is what sweeps away in the kilesas when we see they are impermanent, not self, it's a suffering. And this is the highest. At one time, the former king of Thailand, Rama the Ninth, who had a great love of the forest ajans of the Lumpur Man lineage, he went to see Lumpur Dun. And his question was, you know, what is the highest in Buddhism? What is the goal? What is the highest quality of mind that we're aspiring to develop? And then Puduna said, it's this insight into the three characteristics. That's the highest that a human being can aspire to. That's what will change your mind from unenlightened to enlightened. When we have the wisdom that sees an Icha Dukkha Anatta in our experience, that's what changes us for the better. So tonight uh, we have a night of practice. We can sit meditation for a bit longer and then we'll chant the fire sermon tonight and have a night of practice together. <laughs>